Hello and welcome to episode 173 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitzson. Hello from London. Ian, how's it going? It's going well, Jason. How is London but not Farmer? I survived successfully the hottest day in recorded history in London and the UK, so I'm doing okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, it, it got over 40 degrees rest of the world degree units yesterday. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you made it through. I don't recommend it. Well, I mean, I try to avoid the heat whenever possible. I mean, room temperature is a little warm for me. Yeah, it was intense here in London for a, a couple of days and a couple of hours. It was really stepping outside had an eerily familiar feeling to like being in Dubai which is just not right when you're in London and, and most things are not air conditioned. Yeah, I, I was talking to a colleague who, who works north of, of London and he mentioned, you know, how hot it was and, and I said, Do you have do you have AC? <laughs> and he just started cackling badly. Ah. So I think the heat had gotten to him. Yeah, well well thankfully most of my time here was spent in an overly air conditioned office and after a a three AM argument with the hotel room thermostat, I got things sorted out and it has been nicely conditioned in here the whole time. Well done, sir. Thank you. You have been enjoying the comings and goings at Heathrow, even though you haven't been at Farnborough Air Show, which we'll talk uh, about more in depth in, in just a minute. But you have been thoroughly, at least based on what I've seen on Twitter, thoroughly enjoying oh, yeah. what's happening at the airport. Yeah, so I swear I am here in London for business meetings. It just so happens <laughs> to be that our office is directly beside the runways at, or one of the runway pairs here at Heathrow. Honestly, I don't know which one. I should probably figure that out one of these days. Wait, give me five seconds. Two, seven, right. It is just at the touchdown point of two, seven, right. The first of the two days, they were unfortunately taking off in that direction. So we basically just got noise and watched the airplanes roll by. But today, uh, they were landing in that direction. And if you've ever plane spotted at Heathrow, you know just the, the selection of aircraft you get here. But I was able to plane spot with my actual DSLR. I brought it along for the trip. On the hottest day in recorded temperature in London, I plane spotted at Heathrow from the cool confines of our conference room. Well done, sir. It was nice. The variety here. It's shocking kind of just to see the number of A380s operating in and out. There's BA, obviously, Qatar, Emirates, just kind of a nonstop flow of them for an aircraft that was supposedly dead. There are <laughs> it's good to see them. It has come back. Yeah, I think what struck me the most, or what always strikes me the most about Heathrow in particular, but a lot of the European major hub airports, so like Paris or, or Amsterdam or Frankfurt, but to a lesser extent, is just the sheer variety of aircraft that are landing. I mean, having grown up next to O'Hare, you know, the variety of aircraft in terms of the types of aircraft has often been varied, though that has gone away in in recent years as O'Hare has become more of a regional airport with some larger aircraft, I guess. But I mean, just the variety of things that land at Heathrow, especially that you won't see. I mean, you could see them somewhere else, but never together. It's the only place so many of those aircraft can be seen together. Yeah. And especially some of the uh, sequencing here was, was pretty funny. I think there was a a Logan Air, maybe it was an ATR-42 sequenced directly in front of an Emirates A380, just like it's a fun place to watch some airplanes. 
if I couldn't be at Farnborough, this was the next best thing. Yeah, it was the next best thing. And I'm just thankful that the windows in the conference room were uh, quite clean. <laughs> that That's always the important thing is to have clean windows if you're going to Yes, be it was literally meetings where there were my meetings and everyone else in the room had to do as I said. But basically, in the middle of the mid-sentence, I would get up, go to the window, take pictures, sit back down, and we would continue. It was, continue. Uh, continue mid-sentence. It, it, was, it was great. And everyone on my team is nav geek, so other people who are facing the windows, they'd be mid-sentence, and suddenly their speech rate would get slower because there was something to look at outside. That's important. I mean, you, you have to have priorities. You have to keep those priorities in order. And I appreciate that you did that. But Farnborough did happen elsewhere, somewhere it down did the highway. Happen. Somewhere down the carriageway, I believe. Feel free to email me at podcast that I've had to for it if I just got that one wrong in my sly correction of Jason. But it did happen. There were airplanes to be had. Lots going on. Let's talk about who bought what first, and then we'll talk about some of the other news that wasn't necessarily orders that came out of the air show. So far, we have a total of 313 aircraft orders, 243 firm orders, 12 that were old but had a press conference this time, 40 tentative orders, so letters of intent, memorandum of understanding, et cetera, et cetera. 79 options included along with the firm orders, most of those options coming along with Delta's 737 MAX 10 order and then a smattering of others. And then no swaps or conversions at this particular air show. These are all numbers coming from Flight Global's order tracker that we'll toss a link to in the show notes because by the time the podcast comes out, these numbers will be updated yeah. with some new numbers. Yeah, not a blockbuster show in terms of aircraft orders, especially since the, the headlining order with Delta for the MAX 10, we already knew John Ostrauer broke that a couple of weeks ago already. So we were expecting that. That's 100 order firm plus 30 options. Delta also ordered a, a top-up of their A3, A220-300s, a, another dozen of those. Some of the other larger aircraft, the oddly named 777 Partners, ordered 3737 MAX 8200s and another 36 options for the MAX 8. Aircap was a previously undisclosed customer for 5787-9s. Alaska Air Group for the Horizon unit ordered eight firm E-175 plus 13 options. One of the more interesting orders, Porter ordered an additional 12 E-195 E-2 before it's even taken delivery of its first aircraft. So apparently the prospects for what it sees in that particular aircraft are so strong, they said, we want to get in line for another 20 aircraft. And there were some smaller orders, Azerbaijan Airlines topped off for another 4787 potentially. That's not, uh, it's not an LOI, but it's a tentative order. And then there's EasyJet, which ordered 56320neo. And I'm not sure if that's a new order or reconfirmed or something. Flight Global says new. Yeah, Flight Global says new, but that's interesting because it's, it's a firming of an existing yeah. order. So it's not really new. It's a firming up of an already announced order. Yeah. Yeah. 
So more than half of the ordered aircraft went to Boeing. So far, 58%. Airbus picking up 18%. Embraer almost 11%. And then ATR picking up 12% because ATR picked up a letter of intent from Feel Air. They also got an order of one from ORC and an order of one from Afrojet. Hey, those single orders add up eventually. They do. I mean, you know, airplane here, airplane there. Pretty soon we're talking about real flying. And a little bit of back and forth, as is always to be expected between Boeing and Airbus about who ordered what and things like that. So I thought I'd, I would, to break it down for the, the full year so far, including the air show, because Airbus is saying, well, you know, our selling is just fine. We're talking with people who have money in rooms that aren't necessarily press conferences. We don't need to shout it from the rooftops. Boeing has said the same thing in previous air shows when Airbus made big announcements and then Boeing only sold a couple, you know, headline aircraft at an air show and then went on to sell, you know, more aircraft later after the air show. So, before Farnborough, 259 for Airbus net on the year, 186, these are net orders, 186 for Boeing, Airbus taking 68 new orders for a total of 327. Boeing taking 217 for a total of 403 total orders for the year. So fairly close in the order count. Airbus still leads in the delivery section of things, but obviously as the 787 recommences deliveries, hopefully sooner rather than later, those numbers will start to even out. But yeah, as Jason mentioned, not a huge blockbuster show as far as orders go. Nobody ordered. There was no 400 A320neo order from Indigo Partners this year or anything like that. It seems that that fleets are just kind of topping up, as the case may be, at this particular show. Yeah. By far the fewest number of orders since this chart goes back to 2013 in Paris, but it is almost exactly half the next lowest order year, which was Farnborough 2016, where that was 742. So it's nearly half the orders of the prior worst year in the last decade, which is a bit surprising considering the rebound of air travel and the the shoring up of airline financials. You expected more this year. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure what I expected going into this year's air show. I, I thought it would be a good year. I thought there would be not necessarily a blockbuster order, but I did expect more airlines or at least more lessers to begin re-entering the market with, with some larger orders. But I mean, again, we're recording on Wednesday. There could be a surprise Thursday order somewhere. Oh, nobody orders anything on Thursday. Not expected, but it's not impossible. So we'll put a, a teeny tiny asterisk on this conversation. And Let's talk about what else happened at Farnborough and some of the more interesting announcements that will either come to fruition or not, as the case may be. First up, we've got Airbus's hydrogen test that will be coming up. They have codenamed it Blue Condor, and that project will take a pair of gliders, two Arcus J gliders and modify one of those gliders with a a gaseous hydrogen engine. So this glider is 
not unique, but on the more interesting side, because it it's a motorized sailplane that includes a retractable jet engine. So the glider can either launch itself or basically get across country so that you can go glide somewhere else. So what Airbus is going to do is they're going to modify one of these to introduce a hydrogen combustion engine and then launch a flight campaign with both a traditional kerosene-powered version, the hydrogen-powered version, and then they will fly an aircraft behind the two to take sensor measurements. We've talked about uh, this before. It's actually the DLR that's doing it, the German Aerospace Center that's doing the measurement flights behind these aircraft. And we talked about this over a few years ago now where they were flying a, I think it was their Falcon aircraft behind NASA's DC-8. And they were sniffing out particular measurements and things like that. This will be a similar thing to measure contrail development with a hydrogen engine because that's one of the top concerns about hydrogen power is the development of contrails at altitude. So they'll take these two powered gliders and they will fly behind them and take measurements of non-CO2 emissions, they say. So the glider that is being modified has been modified. And if we're taking the visuals put out by Airbus at face value, that aircraft is November 887 Delta Tango. So that's at least one of them. I'm not sure if that's the one they've actually modified, but we're working to confirm that to see if that's the one that is hydrogen powered and that will be available for tracking. So stay tuned on that. So that's a pretty interesting development and one thing that will be uh, fun fun to follow as they do those measurement flights and, and to see how they go. Okay. That's different and exciting. You want to hear something even more different? Always. All right. Let's talk about the RISE open rotor engine. CFM, the engine maker, which is a joint venture between General Electric Aviation and Saffron Engines, says that Airbus is going to mount one of their RISE, which stands for Revolutionary Innovation for Sustainable Engine, on its A380 flying testbed. That's going to be cool. That's cool. We saw the rendering of what that's going to look like. And yeah, anytime you take an A380 and do something weird with it, I'm ready to see it. Yeah. So that will be the latter half of this decade. So all of the renderings show the the aircraft flying in the the number two position, so the left inside position. So that'll be interesting to see so far. The open fan technology, it's basically a jet engine, but there's no cowling around the fan. And on this new design that Airbus has in their renderings, it looks like there's a second immobile, I guess, Stators is, I guess, but they're all around. Uh, so I'm not sure if the, you would call them call them stators, but they're variable pitch, so they don't rotate, but they can turn to better direct airflow. It, this thing is going to look really cool when it flies. Yeah, it's going to take a while, but I would uh, definitely take a trip out to Toulouse to go see that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to get close to this thing. I, I think it would be be great fun. Now let's talk about something that is supposed to happen by the end of the decade. Mm-hmm. Mm. So at Farnborough, one of the biggest flashes, perhaps a flash in the pan, I'm not sure yet, was Boom's reintroduction, 
re-evaluation, re-release of its redesigned Overture aircraft. So this is the the company that has promised it is building a supersonic passenger aircraft. Still, they say for introduction to passenger service by the end of the decade. The new Overture design features four engines slung low under the wing. It's a low bypass engine, and I guess reminiscent of the seven hundred seven. Am, am I wrong here? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I'm kind of, sort of wrong, or it kind of, sort of looks no, like No, no, it, it kind of, sort of looks like that. <laughs> so the reintroduction, and we'll put a link in the show notes to what this plane looks like now and, and all that good fun stuff. It's redesigned. It's bigger. It's wider. It's longer than it was before. The, the aircraft has grown. It has changed in shape. It has added new engines. What it hasn't gotten is any closer to having an actual engine manufacturer committed to making the engines for the aircraft. Which you kind of need to have that part, don't you? And now you need twice as many. Yeah, oh, that, that's a good point, actually. Those probably won't be too easy to make, but John Ostrower put out kind of scathing tweet thread about this the other day that there is no way first flight 2025 entering to service by 26 is even remotely possible now, given the the last round of flight testing that we had with the, the gear turbofan for the A220, the A320 and all that. These programs take years. And then forget the engines. You have to certify the aircraft for supersonic passenger flight. That's just, I mean, we're waiting longer in New York to certify new subway cars. I can't imagine that certifying a new supersonic air transport vehicle is just going to take as little bit of time as they say it will. I don't believe a word of it. With each passing day, there promised certification timeline becomes even more it was unrealistic to begin with it becomes even more unrealistic but the only reason i'm even bringing this up because there's nothing new here yeah they redesigned it but there's nothing substantially new there's no substantial progress there's no nothing outwardly that makes me believe that they're actually going to fly this plane except one thing go on boom signs partnering agreement with northrop grumman Yes, that's what I was going to say. But just because other companies are willing to milk this for whatever consulting, contracting, part supplying they can get along the way until it goes bust, doesn't no, make it any more real. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. So what is it? Today at the Farnborough Airshow, and I'm quoting Boom's release here. Today at the Farnborough Airshow, Boom Supersonic has also announced a landmark partnering agreement with Northrop Grumman to develop special mission variants for the US government and its allies. Here is something that we talked about when we had John Ostrauer and John Walton on the show when we spent the entire episode specifically on the future of supersonic passenger transport. And one of the things that John Ostrauer mentioned, I called back to now, and he said that it takes billions and billions and billions of dollars and often government support. And so he said, without that, it seems like a long shot. And I agreed with him at the time. And there was the inkling of government support for a a military version of this aircraft. That seems to be moving towards 
becoming much more realistic at this point, given that that Northrop Grumman is on board with this. And given that, it seems more likely, I'm not saying likely, but just more likely that this aircraft will actually fly in some shape or form. In some form, but probably not for airlines and definitely not on their ludicrous timeline at this point. I just appreciate that United is milking it on Twitter and Instagram for all that it's worth. Is that a wise decision? I don't know. We've mentioned it before. They have nothing to lose. They they either get the thing and fly it or they don't and say they tried. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's that. But there's also the fact that one of the main threads at Farmbro this year was sustainability. And yeah, okay, fine. Boom says that this whole thing is going to be developing on SAF. And then you say, okay, that's great. Where's the SAF going to come from? And they sit there and go, uh. But they also can't guarantee that an airline is going to fly it on 100% SAF. Like that's, that's not up to them to do. Right. But it is up to United. But what I'm saying is even with, I mean, the report that we talked about last week, as far as where that SAF comes from, and the ability to generate enough sustainable aviation fuel based on non-biomass sources, non-food adjacent biomass sources, basically taking corn and soy away from, from the existing food supply. It's just not possible at this point. Is there a magic bullet of technology coming? Maybe, but probably not. It's probably going to be iterative and eventually will end up with something that actually works, that is actually sustainable. But with this timeline, it's just patently ridiculous. And I I really thought that it was interesting that we've had Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren on the show before, and he tweeted, I forget how long ago, about Boom being the Theranos of aviation. And some reporter in London asked Blake Scholl, the, the CEO of of boom about this. And he demurred and said, there's always going to be detractors. But a fascinating insight into how people are thinking about this inside aviation versus how it's being portrayed in media outside aviation. I like that comparison though. At this point in time with the information we have available, that seems like a fair comparison. I'm not sure if it's a fair comparison because for better or worse, I believe that the people believe they are doing something worthwhile and that they're going to succeed. I do not believe for a second that there's anyone in that team that thinks they will revolutionize and revitalize supersonic air travel going point to point anywhere in the world for $100 a ticket in business class. Nobody believes that, but that's their messaging. Okay. Yep. Looking at the full story, not just can they fly supersonic, the answer is yes. It's been done before, they can do it again. I'm looking at the full marketing stick at this point, can they do what they say they're going to do? No, that's ridiculous. I can't fly anywhere for $100 right now, subsonic. I can't take a train anywhere for $100. You sure can't. Yeah, no, that that is very fair. Let's stay in the UK. Let's leave the air show for now. Maybe we'll come back next week if there's a surprise Thursday order, which we're not expecting, but you know, you never know. Let's go down to the airport's of London and talk about some of the things that were happening to the runways. Now, Jason, you were quite warm, but as it turns out, the UK 
is, as you mentioned, doesn't have a lot of air conditioning. It's not used to a lot of these things. And one of the things that happened was that runway surfaces, which are made of asphalt, are not not so good with the heat. And this was at London's Luton Airport. They put out a a release. They stopped traffic and put out a release. They said, following today's high temperatures, a surface defect was identified on the runway. Engineers were called immediately to the site to repair works and are currently in progress to resume operations as soon as possible. There was a hole in the runway because it got too hot. It melted. Yeah. Honestly, there was a moment where I thought that happened here at Heathrow when we were sitting at our meetings. We watched a Delta 764 and a Qatar A380 go around back to back. And, and, you know, one go around, it happens, but two in a row, seemingly it's pretty unusual to see that if there's no significant weather. And I thought, oh no, the runway probably melted here too. Thankfully that did not happen, but I wouldn't have been surprised if it did. I mean, it's a sign of the times. Yep. Not I great. Mean, it's, no, it, it's not great. But the runways like the railways and much of the other critical infrastructure here in the UK and elsewhere in Europe is just not built to withstand temperatures this high. Yeah. And this is unfortunately something that we're going to see more and more of as time goes by. I mean, these extreme heat events are not quite the new normal yet, but we're on our way there. As temperatures continue to rise, as, as extremes continue to swing both ways, you know, it's certainly not something that a lot of airports are designed to handle. And these types of things, I think we're going to start to see more of and see how we can adapt our infrastructure and, and manage that. Let's shift our attention to Greece, where a Ukrainian cargo carrier, Meridian, an AN-12BK crashed in Greece as it was trying to return to Nish, Serbia, where it was originating. It was flying from Nish to Amman, Jordan, and its eventual destination was Bangladesh. It was carrying munitions and other assorted products for the Bangladesh Defense Ministry. The aircraft turned around over the Aegean Sea and was trying to return to Nish, but did not, in fact, make it that far. It then began to lose height, tried to make to Kavala in Greece, but was unfortunately unable to make it to that airport and crashed about 18 kilometers west of Kavala. Unfortunately, the aircraft not only crashed, but became a site of very a very unsafe situation because of the cargo on board, hazardous material specialists were called in to deal with kind of a continued fire from the aircraft. Yeah, not great. That'll certainly make any search and rescue and crash investigation scene more dangerous than it needs to be. Yeah. There was eyewitness video of the aircraft. This hasn't been verified completely yet, but there was eyewitness video from the time in the area of what is believed to be the aircraft. And that appears to show the aircraft on fire before it impacted the ground. So the pilots reported engine trouble and turned around and tried to make it back to niche. They were unable to do so. And in fact, tried to make 
make it to Kabbalah. So it's unclear so far what the exact sequence of events was and which engines may have been affected, but it appears that they thought they could make it all the way back to their origin, but it turns out that that was not the case. Let's once again turn our attention to airports trying desperately to make it so passengers can get through the airport in less than 12 days or so. That would be good. Yeah. Jason, do we want to go to Frankfurt, Amsterdam, or London first? Mm, Well, I'm in London, so let's start with that. Okay. So last week, we talked about how Heathrow was limiting passenger operations over the busiest period of the summer to 100,000 passengers a day. Not a huge cut, but a big enough one where airlines had to figure out a way to trim their schedules under the threat of legal action by the airport. Emirates pushed back and said, are you kidding? And then had a meeting with Heathrow Airport where they came to an agreement and kind of brushed things off. Finnair taking a different tact and today announcing that between today, the 20th of July and the 24th of July, they are canceling a number of bookings for passengers who had previously said they were going to fly from wherever to Heathrow or connecting on Finnair into Heathrow. Doesn't necessarily mean where they started. Finnair not saying exactly whose bookings they're canceling, not saying exactly which bookings they're canceling, but this goes back to what we talked about a few episodes ago. Make sure that the airline operating your flights has your phone number and your email address. Because the only way you are going to find out from Finnair if your reservation has been canceled, because they're not canceling flights, they're canceling specific reservations because they can carry a certain number of passengers on these flights. And because the slot regulations said, no, you have to keep operating your flights. They can't just cancel flights and consolidate the flights. They need to keep those flights and get rid of some passengers. So the only way that you're going to know if Finnair has canceled your reservation is if you're on top of it on their web portal, or if they have your email address or phone number so that they can text you. So let's harp on this again. If you book a flight, make sure that the airline operating your flight, not necessarily who you book through, but the airline operating your flight has your contact information. Yeah. And to that point, we talked last week how my parents were flying out to a European cruise and they were going now on Air France through Paris. Thankfully, they and their bags surprisingly made it, but they met another couple on their flight who was going on the same cruise. They were originally booked on Lufthansa, but didn't know that their flight or their itinerary had been canceled until they got to JFK Terminal 1 and tried to check in with Lufthansa, who said, we don't have a reservation for you. Because apparently somewhere along the line, their flight had been canceled or their connecting flight was canceled. And basically their itinerary was dropped and the cruise company rebooked them, but they didn't get notice. And they were rebooked on Air France. It wasn't even like United or anyone in Star Alliance, but thankfully... Air France is in the same terminal as Lufthansa and JFK, so they were able to just go to a different counter. But people are literally going to the airport these days, and it's not a fluke, and they're finding out only then and there that their flight doesn't exist anymore, or their entire reservation is gone. Yeah. Thankfully, that sounds... I mean, there are a lot of people who go on cruises, so maybe it's not as rare as it should be. But that's... I mean... I've been rebooked on other airlines before on purpose, but to be rebooked on another airline entirely, not even another airline, but another alliance entirely, 
That's rare. That's a curveball to find out at the count. I mean, that feeling. So I can't remember if we talked about this last September when I flew from Los Angeles to Paris, the person in front of me checking in, their passport had expired and they realized that trying to check in. And just like the feeling I felt for them, I mean, beyond the how could you not not notice this, but that feeling of, of like, I can't imagine walking up to the counter and being like, here are my bags, I'm ready to go. And they're like, who are you? Why are you here? Happened to a friend of a friend recently too. Their passport wasn't expired, but it expired within the next three months, which six, still, yeah, still basically months, means that your passport is functionally expired at that point. And the airline basically said, sorry, next. Yeah. Oh, how bad. Okay, over to Frankfurt, which has, again, limited the number of flights. Jason, walk me through the numbers. Well, a while back when things really started hitting the fan at first, they took the arrival flow, both the arrivals and departure total number of aircraft movements per hour from 106 down to 96. And Frankfurt, we'll get to Amsterdam, but Frankfurt once again is reducing the flow rate at Frankfurt down to 88, which is a pretty substantial cut from the original 106. Yeah. I mean, it's great that they're continuing to try and work things out. But what do you but do? would it not have been better to just really rip the Band-Aid off yeah, and say, we're going to- What do you do with all the people that were supposed to be on those original 106 and then 96 and then down to 88? flights per hour. That's a lot of canceled flights. Yeah. This is the summer of canceled flights. That's what the summer is. Yep. This is the summer of lost baggage and canceled flights. And then then there's Amsterdam. <laughs> and then there's Amsterdam. Then there's Amsterdam. So we can actually put some quantifiable data together now that Amsterdam released some numbers. And I, I took a look and they said 5.2 million passengers flew to, from, or through Amsterdam in June 2022. Turns out that is actually 1.3 million fewer passengers than went to, from, or through Amsterdam in June 2019. That is a combined total of 15% fewer flights than 2019. So not only were there more than a million fewer passengers going through Amsterdam, but there were 15% fewer flights overall. And this is still what we're seeing in Amsterdam. So it's kind of- But Jason, that's not all. Oh, continue. I will. If you dig into the numbers, it's even fewer flights than the fewer flights would lead you to believe because the number of private flights actually increased. So the passengers still count as passengers. But if you look at the breakdown between commercial passenger traffic and non-scheduled passenger traffic, the number of non-scheduled passengers increased- not insignificantly. So it's not even, you know, a context of having, you know, that many fewer flights, that many fewer passengers in the terminal. It's even fewer passengers in the terminal than it was in 2019 because the number of non-scheduled passengers who aren't using the traditional terminals has increased. Hmm. Overall, it's even worse. Yeah, overall <laughs> it is not great. It's just kind of indicative industry-wide that we're only running at about like 85% of 2019 passenger numbers and traffic flow, but things are just so chaotic and broken that forget 100% of 2019, we can't even do 85% without things being totally chaotic, meltdown mode everywhere. It's going to be an interesting case study in the future. I think the interesting thing 
that I hope someone does because I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not wise enough in the ways of science to do this or, or social science. But it would be interesting to take a global look at the number of passengers, the number of flights versus the number of people working in airports, the number of people working at airlines to see where that imbalance shakes out. You know, in the next couple of years, looking back, maybe starting in 2019 and then moving forward to see how that imbalance is created and where it's shown through the most. Is it in particular positions at airports? Is it security? Is it assistants, gate agents, flight attendants, pilots, you know, all of those things. So hopefully somebody much smarter than I am could work on that. And we would love to have them on the podcast to explain their findings. Mm -hmm. Let us move on to some not breaking news necessarily, but a report that was issued this week entitled Event Involving Ryanair Flight FR4978 in Belarus Airspace on 2-3 May 2021. A riveting report title from the ICAO fact-finding investigation. I always enjoy reading ICAO reports on anything because they're written and it's intentional. They're written with very specific diplomatic language in mind. It makes them nearly impossible to read because the prose has to be so diplomatic. Now, remind but. us in non-diplomatic terms what happened here. <laughs> here comes the big but. So this is the report that the fact-finding investigation has released. I don't know if it's a final report, but it is a very in-depth report that navigates us through what happened to Ryanair flight 4978 that was flying in Belarus at the time. It was flying from Athens to Vilnius, Lithuania, and it was forcibly diverted by Belarus to Minsk. The aircraft was alerted that there were multiple bomb threats against that particular flight. And they were told while in Belarusian airspace that they needed to land in Minsk, even though Vilnius was closer. So the long and the short of it is that pretty much everyone believes that this was an act by Belarus to forcibly divert the aircraft and take one of the passengers who was a Belarusian dissident off the aircraft and arrest him. And this led to a number of reactions by European national authorities to ban aircraft flying into Belarus, ban Belarusian aircraft flying into to Europe, and so on and so forth. And so this particular report comes about a year later, a little over a year later, and provides a lot more evidence and a lot more narration to exactly what happened. It includes a lot of what exactly happened on the aircraft. It includes what happened in the control room in Minsk. It includes what happened with uh, Ryanair's operational control center. All of the things that happened before, during, and after the flight walks you through an entire timeline and then analyzes it and comes to the conclusion that this was an illegal action by Belarus. They contravened the Montreal Convention they forcibly diverted this aircraft for a false purpose and so on and so forth. The report is interesting because while the conclusion sections and the introduction sections are written in this very, very 
diplomatic language. The timeline itself is very easy to follow and becomes very clear that this was a concocted bomb threat that never existed and the aircraft was forcibly diverted for political purposes. Not great. No, not great is exactly what I was going to say. The kicker here is that in the United Nations, in the ICAO meeting to discuss the report, Russia strenuously objected to Belarus being named as the party at fault. What? Uh Uh-huh. So I don't know what to read into that or what to make of it further. Who would be the party at fault? If not Belarus, then certainly it would be Russia. That seems to be the logical place to take that, but that doesn't make sense to me. But that's the report. It'll be linked in the show notes, and we'll put a link also to kind of our coverage of the aviation reaction going back to last May. So you can kind of catch up if you haven't been following this particular story since then. Let's go to some good news and some weird news, and then we'll call it a show. Good news first. The SAS strike is over. An agreement has been reached between the four pilots unions that were party to the strike and the airline. The airline got a lot of it wanted. The pilots got some of what they wanted, but it moves things forward, gets everybody flying again over the next couple of days, and kind of smooths things for the Chapter 11 proceedings that SAS is currently under and allows the airline to keep going. Not great. But you know, as far as what happened, when it happened, and how it happened, but good to see that there has been a resolution to that particular strike. Yeah. Now, here's hoping the airline can turn itself around. That was certainly a long strike. Not too often some of these- uh, 15 days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we often see strikes that have limited impact, maybe a, a couple of days, but 15 days is, if you were an SAS passenger stuck abroad, that was not great for you. Yeah. Not great at all. But it's over. They're getting back to flying, and we'll hopefully see SAS flights more than 50% in the air very shortly. Okay, let's end the show on just a bizarre note. I saw this tweet earlier in the week, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. That Wait, what? Because I just thought, like, at first glance, I thought it was a guy with a big laptop. As it turns out, no, this gentleman had brought an iMac on to his flight, onto a United flight. He was seated in the exit row of what I think is a United 757, and he had an iMac, like a 21-inch iMac. That's odd. Notably not a portable computer. Generally not thought to be a computer that you carry with you, no. No, I think it was a 737. Not that it, at this point it matters whether- Oh, it was oh, a 738 Same difference. But you can see he's done this before because he had it propped on the extended portion of the tray table, leaned back against the seat back in front of him, which has no risk of reclining because he's in an exit row, so the computer can't be yeah. smashed in half. But I'm just kind of impressed that he not only got the- power plug to actually stay in the outlet, which on those aircraft is notorious for kind of spitting your plug back out, but it actually delivered enough power to run that thing. He clearly knew what he was doing, but it was clearly not the first time he had done this. They make laptops now. They're portable. They've got a battery and everything. (laughs) I'm using one right now. I, 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 I just want to meet him and ask him. I really do. I wish the guy had identified himself 
on Twitter so that we could talk to him about this. Because he's clearly done this before. He's got the thing down. He's taken the stand off the iMac so that there's no impediment to resting it kind of on the seat back end tray table. He's got the keyboard and trackpad set up so that they're small enough they'll fit on the, the stand. He's chosen the second exit row so there's no chance of anyone reclining into him. It's a great setup, except my only issue is that he's in an exit row with a large computer. Yeah. And I was told by some folks that this isn't a problem as long as he's, you know, put it away for landing. But Where then the question becomes <laughs> Well, that was number one, is his carry-on bag big enough to to fit is he just sliding an iMac just like into the bin? I mean, I guess you would have to. And then second of all, if there is an incident where there is an emergency landing, is he going to have enough time to pick up his 21-inch iMac and stow it in the overhead bins? I guess so because you're supposed to have put it away, you know, larger electronics long before you're landing. So I guess it's well, what, I'm, what I'm saying is like in the case where it's a rapid descent or something. A yeah. rapid descent, Yes. I, it I, seems you know, like an activity that should not be allowed in an exit row. It was just truly bizarre, both impressive and bizarre. But here's the thing. Stranger things have happened. That's true. Something stranger probably happened on that very flight, and we'll <laughs> never know. We'll never know. Jason, I will let you go enjoy what is now, I believe, much nicer weather in London. The heat has broken. You enjoy that, enjoy the aircraft, and to everyone at home, we will talk to you next week. This has been episode 173 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. 